Chapter thirty three of A Child's History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gwyneth Connell. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Chapter thirty three England under Charles the First. Baby Charles became King Charles the First in the twenty fifth year of his age. Unlike his father, he was usually amiable in his private character, and grave and dignified in his bearing. But, like his father, he had monstrously exaggerated notions of the rights of a king, and was evasive, and not to be trusted. If his word could have been relied upon, his history might have had a different end. His first care was to send over that insolent upstart, Buckingham, to bring Henrietta Maria from Paris to be his queen upon which occasion Buckingham, with his usual audacity, made love to the young Queen of Austria, and was very indignant indeed with Cardinal Richelieu, the French minister, for thwarting his intentions. The English people were very well disposed to like their new Queen, and to receive her with great favour when she came among them as a stranger. But she held the Protestant religion in great dislike, and brought over a crowd of unpleasant priests, who made her do some very ridiculous things, and forced themselves upon the public notice in many disagreeable ways. Hence the people soon came to dislike her, and she soon came to dislike them, and she did so much all through this reign in setting the king, who was dotingly fond of her, against his subjects, that it would have been better for him if she had never been born. Now you are to understand that King Charles I, of his own determination to be a high and mighty king, not to be called to account by anybody, and urged on by his queen besides, deliberately set himself to put his parliament down and to put himself up. You are also to understand that even in pursuit of this wrong idea, enough in itself to have ruined any king, he never took a straight course, but always took a crooked one. He was bent upon war with Spain, though neither the House of Commons nor the people were quite clear as to the justice of that war, now that they began to think a little more about the story of the Spanish match. But the king rushed into it hotly, raised money by illegal means to meet its expenses, and encountered a miserable failure at Cadiz in the very first year of his reign. An expedition to Cadiz had been made in the hope of plunder, but as it was not successful, it was necessary to get a grant of money from the Parliament, and when they met, in no very complying humour, the King told them, to make haste to let him have it, or it would be the worse for themselves. Not put in a more complying humour by this, they impeached the King's favourite, the Duke of Buckingham, as the cause, which he undoubtedly was, of many great public grievances and wrongs. The King, to save him, dissolved the Parliament without getting the money he wanted, and when the Lords implored him to consider and grant a little delay, he replied, No, not one minute. He then began to raise money for himself by the following means, among others. He levied certain duties, called tonnage and poundage, which had not been granted by the Parliament, and could lawfully be levied by no other power. He called upon the seaport towns to furnish, and to pay all the costs for three months of a fleet of armed ships and he required the people to unite in lending him large sums of money, the repayment of which was very doubtful. If the poor people refused, they were pressed as soldiers or sailors. If the gentry refused, they were sent to prison. Five gentlemen, named Sir Thomas Darnell, John Corbett, Walter Earle, John Heveningham, and Everard Hampton, for refusing were taken up by a warrant of the King's Privy Council, and were sent to prison without any cause but the King's pleasure being stated for their imprisonment. Then the question came to be solemnly tried, whether this was not a violation of Magna Charta, and an encroachment by the King on the highest rights of the English people. His lawyers contended no, because to encroach upon the rights of the English people would be to do wrong, and the King could do no wrong. The accommodating judges decided in favour of this wicked nonsense, and here was a fatal division between the King and the people.
For all this, it became necessary to call another Parliament. The people, sensible of the danger in which their liberties were, chose for it those who were best known for their determined opposition to the King. But still the King, quite blinded by his determination to carry everything before him, addressed them when they met, in a contemptuous manner, and just told them in so many words that he had only called them together because he wanted money. The Parliament, strong enough and resolute enough to know that they would lower his tone, cared little for what he said, and laid before him one of the great documents of history, which is called the Petition of Right, requiring that the free men of England should no longer be called upon to lend the King money, and should no longer be pressed or imprisoned for refusing to do so. Further, that the free men of England should no longer be seized by the King's special mandate or warrant, it being contrary to their rights and liberties and the laws of their country. At first the King returned an answer to this petition, in which he tried to shirk it altogether, but, the House of Commons then showing their determination to go on with the impeachment of Buckingham, the King in alarm returned an answer, giving his consent to all that was required of him. He not only afterwards departed from his word and honour on these points, over and over again, but, at this very time, he did the mean and dissembling act of publishing his first answer, and not his second, merely that the people might suppose that the Parliament had not got the better of him. That pestilent Buckingham, to gratify his own wounded vanity, had by this time involved the country in war with France, as well as with Spain. For such miserable causes and such miserable creatures are wars sometimes made. But he was destined to do little more mischief in this world. One morning, as he was going out of his house to his carriage, he turned to speak to a certain Colonel Fryer who was with him, and he was violently stabbed with a knife which the murderer left sticking in his heart. This happened in his hall. He had had angry words upstairs, just before, with some French gentlemen, who were immediately suspected by his servants, and had a close escape from being set upon and killed. In the midst of the noise the real murderer, who had gone to the kitchen and might easily have got away, drew his sword and cried out, "'I am the man!' His name was John Felton, a Protestant and a retired officer in the army. He said he had no personal ill-will to the Duke, but had killed him as a curse to the country." He had aimed his blow well, for Buckingham had time to cry out, "'Villain!' and then he drew out the knife, fell against a table, and died. The council made a mighty business of examining John Felton about this murder, though it was a plain case enough, one would think. He had come seventy miles to do it, he told them, and he did it for the reason he had declared, if they put him upon the rack, as that noble Marquis of Dorset, whom he saw before him, had the goodness to threaten, he gave that Marquis warning that he would accuse him as his accomplice." The King was unpleasantly anxious to have him racked, nevertheless, but as the judges now found out that torture was contrary to the law of England—it is a pity they did not make the discovery a little sooner—John Felton was simply executed for the murder he had done. A murder it undoubtedly was, and not in the least to be defended, though he had freed England from one of the most profligate, contemptible, and base court favourites to whom it has ever yielded. A very different man now arose. This was Sir Thomas Wentworth, a Yorkshire gentleman, who had sat in Parliament for a long time, and who had favoured arbitrary and haughty principles, but who had gone over to the people's side on receiving offence from Buckingham. The King, much wanting such a man, for besides being naturally favourable to the King's cause, he had great abilities, made him first a baron, and then a viscount, and gave him high employment, and won him most completely. A Parliament, however, was still in existence, and was not to be won. On the 20th of January, 1629, Sir John Elliot, a great man who had been active in the Petition of Right, brought forward other strong resolutions against the King's chief instruments, and called upon the Speaker to put them to the vote. To this the Speaker answered, he was commanded otherwise by the King, and got up to leave the chair, which, according to the rules of the House of Commons, would have obliged it to adjourn without doing anything more, when two members, named Mr. Hollis and Mr. Valentine, held him down.
A scene of great confusion arose among the members, and while many swords were drawn and flashing about, the King, who was kept informed of all that was going on, told the captain of his guard to go down to the house and force the doors. The resolutions were by that time, however, voted, and the House adjourned. Sir John Elliot and those two members who had held the Speaker down were quickly summoned before the Council. As they claimed it to be their privilege not to answer out of Parliament for anything they had said in it, they were committed to the Tower. The King then went down and dissolved the Parliament, in a speech wherein he made mention of these gentlemen as vipers, which did not do him much good that ever I have heard of. As they refused to gain their liberty by saying they were sorry for what they had done, the King, always remarkably unforgiving, never overlooked their offence. When they demanded to be brought up before the Court of King's Bench, he even resorted to the meanness of having them moved about from prison to prison, so that the writs issued for that purpose should not legally find them. At last they came before the Court and were sentenced to heavy fines, and to be imprisoned during the King's pleasure. When Sir John Eliot's health had quite given way, and he so longed for change of air and scene as to petition for his release, the King sent back the answer, worthy of his sowship himself, that the petition was not humble enough. When he sent another petition by his young son, in which he pathetically offered to go back to prison when his health was restored, if he might be released for its recovery, the King still disregarded it. When he died in the Tower, and his children petitioned to be allowed to take his body down to Cornwall, there to lay it among the ashes of his forefathers, the King returned for answer, Let Sir John Eliot's body be buried in the church of that parish where he died. All this was like a very little king indeed, I think. And now, for twelve long years, steadily pursuing his design of setting himself up and putting the people down, the King called no Parliament, but ruled without one. If twelve thousand volumes were written in his praise, as a good many have been, it would still remain a fact, impossible to be denied, that for twelve years King Charles I reigned in England unlawfully and despotically, seized upon his subjects' goods and money at his pleasure, and punished according to his unbridled will all who ventured to oppose him. It is a fashion, with some people, to think that this king's career was cut short, but I must say myself that I think he ran a pretty long one. William Laud, Archbishop of Canterbury, was the king's right-hand man in the religious part of the putting down of the people's liberties. Laud, who was a sincere man, of large learning but small sense, for the two things sometimes go together in very different quantities, though a Protestant, held opinions so near those of the Catholics that the Pope wanted to make a cardinal of him if he would have accepted that favour. He looked upon vows, robes, lighted candles, images, and so forth, as amazingly important in religious ceremonies, and he brought in an immensity of bowing and candle-snuffing. He also regarded archbishops and bishops as a sort of miraculous persons, and was inveterate in the last degree against any who thought otherwise. Accordingly, he offered up thanks to heaven, and was in a state of much pious pleasure when a Scotch clergyman named Leighton was pilloried, whipped, branded in the cheek, and had one of his ears cut off and one of his nostrils slit, for calling bishops trumpery and the inventions of men. He originated on a Sunday morning the prosecution of William Prynne, a barrister who was of similar opinions, and who was fined a thousand pounds, who was pilloried, who had his ears cut off on two occasions, one ear at a time, and who was imprisoned for life. He highly approved of the punishment of Dr. Bastwick, a physician, who was also fined a thousand pounds, and who afterwards had his ears cut off, and was imprisoned for life. These were gentle methods of persuasion, some will tell you. I think they were rather calculated to be alarming to the people. In the money part of the putting down of the people's liberties, the king was equally gentle, as some will tell you, as I think, equally alarming. He levied those duties of tonnage and poundage, and increased them as he thought fit. He granted monopolies to companies of merchants on their paying him for them, notwithstanding the great complaints that had, for years and years, been made on the subject of monopolies. 
He fined the people for disobeying proclamations issued by his sowship in direct violation of law. He revived the detested forest laws, and took private property to himself as his forest right. Above all, he determined to have what was called ship money, that is to say, money for the support of the fleet, not only from the seaports, but from all the counties of England, having found out that, in some ancient time or other, all the counties paid it. The grievance of this ship money being somewhat too strong, John Chambers, a citizen of London, refused to pay his part of it. For this, the Lord Mayor ordered John Chambers to prison, and for that, John Chambers brought a suit against the Lord Mayor. Lord Say, also, behaved like a real nobleman and declared he would not pay. But the sturdiest and best opponent of the ship money was John Hampton, a gentleman of Buckinghamshire, who had sat among the vipers in the House of Commons when there was such a thing, and who had been the bosom friend of Sir John Eliot. The case was tried before the twelve judges in the Court of Exchequer, and again the King's lawyers said it was impossible that ship money could be wrong, because the King could do no wrong, however hard he tried, and he really did try very hard during these twelve years. Seven of the judges said that was quite true, and Mr. Hampton was bound to pay. Five of the judges said that was quite false, and Mr. Hampton was not bound to pay. So the King triumphed, as he thought, by making Hampton the most popular man in England, where matters were getting to that height now that many honest Englishmen could not endure their country, and sailed away across the seas to found a colony in Massachusetts Bay in America. It is said that Hampton himself and his relation Oliver Cromwell were going with a company of such voyagers, and were actually on board ship when they were stopped by a proclamation prohibiting sea captains to carry out such passengers without the royal license. But, oh, it would have been well for the King if he had let them go. This was the state of England. If Laud had been a madman just broke loose, he could not have done more mischief than he did in Scotland. In his endeavours, in which he was seconded by the King, than in person in that part of his dominions, to force his own ideas of bishops, and his own religious forms and ceremonies upon the Scotch, he roused that nation to a perfect frenzy. They formed a solemn league, which they called the Covenant, for the preservation of their own religious forms. They rose in arms throughout the whole country, they summoned all their men to prayers, and sermons twice a day by beat of drum. They sang psalms, in which they compared their enemies to all the evil spirits that ever were heard of, and they solemnly vowed to smite them with the sword. At first the King tried force, then treaty, then a Scottish Parliament, which did not answer at all. Then he tried the Earl of Strafford, formerly Sir Thomas Wentworth, who, as Lord Wentworth, had been governing Ireland. He, too, had carried it with a very high hand there, though to the benefit and prosperity of that country. Strafford and Laud were for conquering the Scottish people by force of arms. Other lords who were taken into council recommended that a Parliament should at last be called, to which the King unwillingly consented. So, on the 13th of April, 1640, that then strange sight, a Parliament, was seen at Westminster. It is called the Short Parliament, for it lasted a very little while. While the members were all looking at one another, doubtful who would dare to speak, Mr. Pym arose and set forth all that the King had done unlawfully during the past twelve years, and what was the position to which England was reduced. This great example set, other members took courage and spoke the truth freely, though with great patience and moderation. The King, a little frightened, sent to say that if they would grant him a certain sum on certain terms, no more ship money should be raised. They debated the matter for two days, and then, as they would not give him all he asked without promise or inquiry, he dissolved them. But they knew very well that he must have a Parliament now, and he began to make that discovery too, though rather late in the day. Wherefore, on the 24th of September, being then at York with an army collected against the Scottish people, but his own men sullen and discontented like the rest of the nation, the King told the great council of the Lords, whom he had called to meet him there, that he would summon another Parliament to assemble on the 3rd of November. 
The soldiers of the Covenant had now forced their way into England, and had taken possession of the northern counties, where the coals are got. As it would never do to be without coals, and as the King's troops could make no head against the Covenanters so full of gloomy zeal, a truce was made, and a treaty with Scotland was taken into consideration. Meanwhile, the northern counties paid the Covenanters to leave the coals alone and keep quiet. We have now disposed of the short Parliament. We have next to see what memorable things were done by the long one. Second Part the Long Parliament assembled on the 3rd of November, 1641. That day week the Earl of Strafford arrived from York, very sensible that the spirited and determined men who formed that Parliament were no friends towards him, who had not only deserted the cause of the people, but who had on all occasions opposed himself to their liberties. The King told him, for his comfort, that the Parliament should not hurt one hair of his head. But, on the very next day, Mr. Pym, in the House of Commons, and with great solemnity, impeached the Earl of Strafford as a traitor. He was immediately taken into custody, and fell from his proud height. It was the 22nd of March before he was brought to trial in Westminster Hall, where, although he was very ill and suffered great pain, he defended himself with such ability and majesty that it was doubtful whether he would not get the best of it. But on the thirteenth day of the trial, Pym produced in the House of Commons a copy of some notes of a council, found by young Sir Harry Vane in a red velvet cabinet belonging to his father, Secretary Vane, who sat at the council table with the Earl in which Strafford had distinctly told the King that he was free from all rules and obligations of government, and might do with his people whatever he liked, and in which he had added, "'You have an army in Ireland that you may employ to reduce this kingdom to obedience.' It was not clear whether by the words, "'This kingdom,' he had really meant England or Scotland, but the Parliament contended that he meant England, and this was treason. At the same sitting of the House of Commons, it was resolved to bring in a bill of attainder declaring the treason to have been committed, in preference to proceeding with the trial by impeachment, which would have required the treason to be proved. So a bill was brought in at once, was carried through the House of Commons by a large majority, and was sent up to the House of Lords. While it was still uncertain whether the House of Lords would pass it and the King consent to it, Pym disclosed to the House of Commons that the King and Queen had both been plotting with the officers of the army to bring up the soldiers and control the Parliament, and also to introduce two hundred soldiers into the Tower of London to effect the Earl's escape. The plotting with the army was revealed by one George Goring, the son of a lord of that name, a bad fellow who was one of the original plotters and turned traitor. The King had actually given his warrant for the admission of the two hundred men into the Tower, and they would have got in, too, but for the refusal of the Governor, a sturdy Scotchman by the name of Balfour, to admit them. These matters being made public, great numbers of people began to riot outside the Houses of Parliament, and to cry out for the execution of the Earl of Strafford, as one of the King's chief instruments against them. The bill passed the House of Lords, while the people were in this state of agitation, and was laid before the King for his assent, together with another bill declaring that the Parliament then assembled should not be dissolved or adjourned without their own consent. The King, not unwilling to save a faithful servant, though he had no great attachment for him, was in some doubt what to do, but he gave his consent to both bills, although he in his heart believed that the bill against the Earl of Strafford was unlawful and unjust. The Earl had written to him, telling him that he was willing to die for his sake, but he had not expected that his royal master would take him at his word quite so readily, for when he heard his doom, he laid his hand upon his heart, and said, "'Put not your trust in princes!' The King, who never could be straightforward and plain, through one single day or through one single sheet of paper, wrote a letter to the Lords, and sent it by the young Prince of Wales, entreating them to prevail with the Commons that that unfortunate man should fulfil the natural course of his life in a close imprisonment. In a postscript to the very same letter, he added, If he must die, it were charity to reprieve him till Saturday. 
if there had been any doubt of his fate, this weakness and meanness would have settled it. The very next day, which was the 12th of May, he was brought out to be beheaded on Tower Hill. Archbishop Laud, who had been so fond of having people's ears cropped off and their noses slit, was now confined in the Tower too, and when the Earl went by his window to his death, he was there at his request to give him his blessing. They had been great friends in the King's cause, and the Earl had written to him in the days of their power that he thought it would be an admirable thing to have Mr. Hampton publicly whipped for refusing to pay the ship money. However, those high and mighty doings were over now, and the Earl went his way to death with dignity and heroism. The Governor wished him to get into a coach at the Tower Gate, for fear the people should tear him to pieces, but he said it was all one to him whether he died by the axe or by the people's hands. So he walked, with a firm tread and a stately look, and sometimes pulled off his hat to them as he passed along. They were profoundly quiet. He made a speech on the scaffold from some notes he had prepared. The paper was found lying there after his head was struck off, and one blow of the axe killed him in the forty-ninth year of his age. This bold and daring act, the Parliament accompanied by other famous measures, all originating, as even this did, in the King's having so grossly and so long abused his power. The name of delinquents was applied to all sheriffs and other officers who had been concerned in raising the ship money, or any other money, from the people in an unlawful manner. The Hampton judgment was reversed. The judges who had decided against Hampton were called upon to give large securities, that they would take such consequences as Parliament might impose upon them, and one was arrested as he sat in High Court and carried off to prison. Laud was impeached. The unfortunate victims whose ears had been cropped and whose noses had been slit were brought out of prison in triumph, and a bill was passed declaring that a Parliament should be called every third year, and that if the King and the King's officers did not call it, the people should assemble of themselves and summon it, as of their own right and power. Great illuminations and rejoicings took place over all these things, and the country was wildly excited. That the Parliament took advantage of this excitement and stirred them up by every means, there is no doubt. But you are always to remember those twelve long years, during which the King had tried so hard whether he really could do any wrong or not. All this time there was a great religious outcry against the right of the bishops to sit in Parliament, to which the Scottish people particularly objected. The English were divided on this subject, and, partly on this account, and partly because they had had foolish expectations that the Parliament would be able to take off nearly all the taxes, numbers of them sometimes wavered and inclined towards the King. I believe myself that if, at this or almost any other period of his life, the King could have been trusted by any man not out of his senses, he might have saved himself and kept his throne. But, on the English army being disbanded, he plotted with the officers again, as he had done before, and established the fact beyond all doubt by putting his signature of approval to a petition against the parliamentary leaders, which was drawn up by certain officers. When the Scottish army was disbanded, he went to Edinburgh in four days, which was going very fast at that time, to plot again, and so darkly, too, that it is difficult to decide what his whole object was. Some suppose that he wanted to gain over the Scottish Parliament, as he did in fact gain over, by presents and favours, many Scottish lords and men of power. Some think that he went to get proofs against the parliamentary leaders in England, of their having treasonably invited the Scottish people to come and help them. With whatever object he went to Scotland, he did little good by going. At the instigation of the Earl of Montrose, a desperate man who was then in prison for plotting, he tried to kidnap three Scottish lords who escaped. A committee of the Parliament at home, who had followed to watch him, writing an account of this incident, as it was called, to the Parliament, the Parliament made a fresh stir about it, were, or feigned to be, much alarmed for themselves, and wrote to the Earl of Essex, the Commander-in-Chief, for a guard to protect them. 
It is not absolutely proved that the King plotted in Ireland besides, but it is very probable that he did, and that the Queen did, and that he had some wild hope of gaining the Irish people over to his side by favouring a rise among them. Whether or no, they did rise in a most brutal and savage rebellion, in which, encouraged by their priests, they committed such atrocities upon numbers of the English, of both sexes and of all ages, as nobody could believe, but for their being related on oath by eyewitnesses. Whether one hundred thousand or two hundred thousand Protestants were murdered in this outbreak is uncertain, but that it was as ruthless and barbarous an outbreak as ever was known among any savage people is certain." The king came home from Scotland, determined to make a great struggle for his lost power. He believed that, through his presence and favours, Scotland would take no part against him, and the Lord Mayor of London received him with such a magnificent dinner that he thought he must have become popular again in England. It would take a good many Lord Mayors, however, to make a people, and the king soon found himself mistaken. Not so soon, though, but that there was a great opposition in the Parliament to a celebrated paper put forth by Pym and Hampton and the rest, called The Remonstrance, which set forth all the illegal acts that the King had ever done, but politely laid the blame of them on his bad advisers. Even when it was passed and presented to him, the King still thought himself strong enough to discharge Balfour from his command in the Tower, and to put in his place a man of bad character, to whom the Commons instantly objected, and whom he was obliged to abandon. At this time, the old outcry about the bishops became louder than ever, and the old Archbishop of York was so near being murdered as he went down to the House of Lords, being laid hold of by the mob and violently knocked about, in return for very foolishly scolding a shrill boy who was yelping out, No bishops! that he sent for all the bishops who were in town, and proposed to them to sign a declaration that, as they could no longer without danger to their lives attend their duty in Parliament, they protested against the lawfulness of everything done in their absence. This they asked the King to send to the House of Lords, which he did. Then the House of Commons impeached the whole party of bishops, and sent them off to the Tower. Taking no warning from this, but encouraged by there being a moderate party in the Parliament who objected to these strong measures, the King, on the 3rd of January, 1,642, took the rashest step that ever was taken by mortal man. Of his own accord, and without advice, he sent the Attorney-General to the House of Lords, to accuse of treason certain members of Parliament, who as popular leaders were the most obnoxious to him, Lord Kimbolton, Sir Arthur Hesselrig, Denzil Hollis, John Pym, they used to call him King Pym, he possessed such power and looked so big, John Hampton, and William Strode. The houses of those members he caused to be entered, and their papers to be sealed up. At the same time, he sent a messenger to the House of Commons, demanding to have the five gentlemen who were members of that House immediately produced. To this, the House replied that they should appear as soon as there was any legal charge against them, and immediately adjourned. Next day, the House of Commons sent into the city to let the Lord Mayor know that their privileges are invaded by the King, and that there is no safety for anybody or anything. Then, when the five members are gone out of the way, down comes the king himself, with all his guard, and from two to three hundred gentlemen and soldiers, of whom the greater part were armed. These he leaves in the hall, and then, with his nephew at his side, goes into the house, takes off his hat, and walks up to the speaker's chair. The speaker leaves it, the king stands in front of it, looks about him steadily for a little while, and says he has come for those five members. No one speaks, and then he calls John Pym by name. No one speaks, and then he calls Denzil Hollis by name. No one speaks, and then he asks the Speaker of the House where those five members are. The Speaker, answering on his knee, nobly replies that he is the servant of that House, and that he has neither eyes to see, nor tongue to speak, anything but what the House commands him. 
Upon this, the king, beaten from that time evermore, replies that he will seek them himself, for they have committed treason, and goes out with his hat in his hand amid some audible murmurs from the members. No words can describe the hurry that arose out of doors when all this was known. The five members had gone for safety to a house in Coleman Street, in the city, where they were guarded all night, and indeed the whole city watched in arms like an army. At ten o'clock in the morning the King, already frightened at what he had done, came to the Guildhall with only half a dozen lords, and made a speech to the people, hoping they would not shelter those whom he accused of treason. Next day he issued a proclamation for the apprehension of the five members, but the Parliament minded it so little that they made great arrangements for having them brought down to Westminster in great state five days afterwards. The King was so alarmed now at his own imprudence, if not for his own safety, that he left his palace at Whitehall, and went away with his Queen and children to Hampton Court. It was the 11th of May, when the five members were carried in state and triumph to Westminster. They were taken by water. The river could not be seen for the boats on it, and the five members were hemmed in by barges full of men and great guns, ready to protect them at any cost. Along the Strand, a large body of the train-bands of London, under their commander, Skippen, marched to be ready to assist the little fleet. Beyond them came a crowd who choked the streets, roaring incessantly about the bishops and the papists, and crying out contemptuously as they passed Whitehall, "'What has become of the King?' With this great noise outside the House of Commons, and with great silence within, Mr. Pym rose and informed the House of the great kindness with which they had been received in the city. Upon that, the House called the sheriffs in and thanked them, and requested the train-bands under their commander Skippen to guard the House of Commons every day. Then came four thousand men on horseback, out of Buckinghamshire, offering their services as a guard too, and bearing a petition to the King, complaining of the injury that had been done to Mr. Hampton, who was their county man, and much beloved and honoured. When the King set off for Hampton Court, the gentlemen and soldiers who had been with him followed him out of town as far as Kingston-upon-Thames. Next day, Lord Digby came to them from the King at Hampton Court, in his coach and six, to inform them that the King accepted their protection. This, the Parliament said, was making war against the kingdom, and Lord Digby fled abroad. The Parliament then immediately applied themselves to getting hold of the military power of the country, well knowing that the King was already trying hard to use it against them, and that he had secretly sent the Earl of Newcastle to Hull, to secure a valuable magazine of arms and gunpowder that was there. In those times, every county had its own magazines of arms and powder, for its own train bands or militia, so the Parliament brought in a bill claiming the right, which up to this time had belonged to the King, of appointing the Lord Lieutenants of Counties, who commanded these train bands, also of having all the forts, castles, and garrisons in the Kingdom put into the hands of such governors as they, the Parliament, could confide in. It also passed a law depriving the bishops of their votes. The King gave his assent to that bill, but would not abandon the right of appointing the Lord Lieutenants, though he said he was willing to appoint such as might be suggested to him by the Parliament. When the Earl of Pembroke asked him whether he would not give way on that question for a time, he said, By God, not for one hour, and upon this he and the Parliament went to war. His young daughter was betrothed to the Prince of Orange. On pretense of taking her to the country of her future husband, the Queen was already got safely away to Holland, there to pawn the crown jewels for money to raise an army on the King's side. The Lord Admiral being sick, the House of Commons now named the Earl of Warwick to hold his place for a year. The King named another gentleman, the House of Commons took its own way, and the Earl of Warwick became Lord Admiral without the King's consent. The Parliament sent orders down to Hull to have that magazine removed to London. The King went down to Hull to take it himself. The citizens would not admit him into the town, and the Governor would not admit him into the castle. 
The Parliament resolved that whatever the two Houses passed, and the King would not consent to, should be called an ordinance, and should be as much a law as if he did consent to it. The King protested against this, and gave notice that these ordinances were not to be obeyed. The King, attended by the majority of the House of Peers, and by many members of the House of Commons, established himself at York. The Chancellor went to him with the Great Seal, and the Parliament made a new Great Seal. The Queen sent over a ship full of arms and ammunition, and the King issued letters to borrow money at high interest. The Parliament raised twenty regiments of foot and seventy-five troops of horse, and the people willingly aided them with their money, plate, jewellery, and trinkets, the married women even with their wedding rings. Every member of Parliament who could raise a troop or a regiment in his own part of the country, dressed it according to his taste and in his own colours, and commanded it. Foremost among them all, Oliver Cromwell raised a troop of horse, thoroughly in earnest and thoroughly well armed, who were perhaps the best soldiers that ever were seen. In some of their proceedings, this famous Parliament passed the bounds of previous law and custom, yielded to and favoured riotous assemblages of the people, and acted tyrannically in imprisoning some who differed from the popular leaders. But again, you are always to remember that the twelve years during which the King had had his own willful way had gone before, and that nothing could make the times what they might, could, would, or should have been, if those twelve years had never rolled away. Third Part I shall not try to relate the particulars of the great civil war between King Charles I and the Long Parliament, which lasted nearly four years, and a full account of which would fill many large books. It was a sad thing that Englishmen should once more be fighting against Englishmen on English ground, but it is some consolation to know that on both sides there was great humanity, forbearance, and honour. The soldiers of the Parliament were far more remarkable for these good qualities than the soldiers of the King, many of whom fought for mere pay without much caring for the cause. But those of the nobility and gentry who were on the King's side were so brave and so faithful to him that their conduct cannot but command our highest admiration. Among them were great numbers of Catholics, who took the royal side because the Queen was so strongly of their persuasion. The King might have distinguished some of these gallant spirits if he had been as generous a spirit himself, by giving them the command of his army. Instead of that, however, true to his old high notions of royalty, he entrusted it to his two nephews, Prince Rupert and Prince Maurice, who were of royal blood and came over from abroad to help him. It might have been better for him if they had stayed away, since Prince Rupert was an impetuous hot-headed fellow, whose only idea was to dash into battle at all times and seasons, and lay about him. The general-in-chief of the parliamentary army was the Earl of Essex, a gentleman of honour and an excellent soldier. A little while before the war broke out, there had been some rioting at Westminster between certain officious law students and noisy soldiers, and the shopkeepers and their apprentices, and the general people in the streets. At that time the King's friends called the crowd roundheads, because the apprentices wore short hair. The crowd, in return, called their opponents cavaliers, meaning that they were a blustering set who pretended to be very military. These two words now began to be used to distinguish the two sides in the Civil War. The Royalists also called the Parliamentary men rebels and rogues, while the Parliamentary men called them malignants, and spoke of themselves as the godly, the honest, and so forth. The war broke out at Portsmouth, where that double traitor Goring had again gone over to the King and was besieged by the Parliamentary troops. Upon this, the King proclaimed the Earl of Essex and the officers serving under him traitors, and called upon his loyal subjects to meet him in arms at Nottingham on the 25th of August. But his loyal subjects came about him in scanty numbers, and it was a windy, gloomy day, and the royal standard got blown down, and the whole affair was very melancholy. The chief engagements after this took place in the Vale of the Red Horse near Banbury, at Brentford, at Devizes, at Chalgrave Field, where Mr. Hampton was so sorely wounded while fighting at the head of his men that he died within a week, at Newbury, 
in which battle Lord Falkland, one of the best noblemen on the King's side, was killed, at Leicester, at Nassaby, at Winchester, at Marston Moor near York, at Newcastle, and in many other parts of England and Scotland. These battles were attended with various successes. At one time the King was victorious, at another time the Parliament. But almost all the great and busy towns were against the King, and when it was considered necessary to fortify London, all ranks of people, from labouring men and women up to lords and ladies, worked hard together with heartiness and good will. The most distinguished leaders on the parliamentary side were Hampton, Sir Thomas Fairfax, and above all Oliver Cromwell, and his son-in-law Ireton. During the whole of this war the people, to whom it was very expensive and irksome, and to whom it was made the more distressing by almost every family being divided, some of its members attaching themselves to one side and some to the other, were over and over again most anxious for peace. So were some of the best men in each cause. Accordingly, treaties of peace were discussed between commissioners from the Parliament and the King, at York, at Oxford, where the King held a little Parliament of his own, and at Uxbridge. But they came to nothing. In all these negotiations, and in all his difficulties, the King showed himself at his best. He was courageous, cool, self-possessed, and clever. But the old taint of his character was always in him, and he was never for one single moment to be trusted. Lord Clarendon, the historian, one of his highest admirers, supposes that he had unhappily promised the Queen never to make peace without her consent, and that this must often be taken as his excuse. He never kept his word from night to morning. He signed a cessation of hostilities with the blood-stained Irish rebels for a sum of money, and invited the Irish regiments over to help him against the Parliament. In the Battle of Nasby, his cabinet was seized and was found to contain a correspondence with the Queen, in which he expressly told her that he had deceived the Parliament—a mongrel Parliament, he called it now, as an improvement on his old term of vipers—in pretending to recognize it and to treat with it, and from which it further appeared that he had long been in secret treaty with the Duke of Lorraine, for a foreign army of ten thousand men. Disappointed in this, he sent a most devoted friend of his, the Earl of Glamorgan, to Ireland, to conclude a secret treaty with the Catholic powers, to send him an Irish army of ten thousand men, in return for which he was to bestow great favours on the Catholic religion. And, when this treaty was discovered in the carriage of a fighting Irish archbishop who was killed in one of the many skirmishes of those days, he basely denied and deserted his attached friend, the Earl, on his being charged with high treason, and even worse than this— had left blanks in the secret instructions he gave him with his own kingly hand, expressly that he might thus save himself. At last, on the twenty-seventh day of April, one thousand six hundred and forty-six, the King found himself in the city of Oxford, so surrounded by the parliamentary army who were closing in upon him, on all sides, that he felt that if he would escape he must delay no longer. So that night, having altered the cut of his hair and beard, he was dressed up as a servant, and put upon a horse with a cloak strapped behind him, and rode out of the town behind one of his own faithful followers, with a clergyman of that country who knew the road well for a guide. He rode towards London as far as Harrow, and then altered his plans, and resolved, it would seem, to go to the Scottish camp. The Scottish men had been invited over to help the parliamentary army, and had a large force then in England. The king was so desperately intriguing in everything he did, that it is doubtful what he exactly meant by this step. He took it anyhow, and delivered himself up to the Earl of Leven, the Scottish General-in-Chief, who treated him as an honourable prisoner. Negotiations between the Parliament on the one hand, and the Scottish authorities on the other, as to what should be done with him, lasted until the following February. Then, when the King had refused to the Parliament the concession of that old militia point for twenty years, and had refused to Scotland the recognition of its solemn league and covenant, Scotland got a handsome sum for its army and its help, and the King into the bargain. He was taken, by certain parliamentary commissioners appointed to receive him, to one of his own houses, called Holmby House, in Althorpe, in Northamptonshire. 
While the Civil War was still in progress, John Pym died, and was buried with great honour in Westminster Abbey. Not with greater honour than he deserved, for the liberties of Englishmen owe a mighty debt to Pym and Hampton. The war was but newly over when the Earl of Essex died, of an illness brought on by his having overheated himself in a stag-hunt in Windsor Forest. He, too, was buried in Westminster Abbey, with great state. I wish it were not necessary to add that Archbishop Laud died upon the scaffold when the war was not yet done. His trial lasted in all nearly a year, and it being doubtful even then whether the charges brought against him amounted to treason, the odious old contrivance of the worst kings was resorted to, and a bill of attainder was brought in against him. He was a violently prejudiced and mischievous person, had had strong ear-cropping and nose-splitting propensities, as you know, and had done a world of harm, but he died peaceably and like a brave old man." Fourth part. When the Parliament had got the King into their hands, they became very anxious to get rid of their army, in which Oliver Cromwell had begun to acquire great power, not only because of his courage and high abilities, but because he professed to be very sincere in the Scottish sort of Puritan religion that was then exceedingly popular among the soldiers. They were as much opposed to the bishops as to the Pope himself, and the very privates, drummers, and trumpeters had such an inconvenient habit of starting up and preaching long-winded discourses that I would not have belonged to that army on any account. So the Parliament, being far from sure but that the army might begin to preach and fight against them now it had nothing else to do, proposed to disband the greater part of it, to send another part to serve in Ireland against the rebels, and to keep only a small force in England. But the army would not consent to be broken up, except upon its own conditions, and when the Parliament showed an intention of compelling it, it acted for itself in an unexpected manner. A certain cornet of the name of Joyce arrived at Holmby House one night, attended by four hundred horsemen, went into the King's room with his hat in one hand and a pistol in the other, and told the King that he had come to take him away. The King was willing enough to go, and only stipulated that he should be publicly required to do so the next morning. Next morning, accordingly, he appeared on the top of the steps of the house, and asked Cornet Joyce, before his men and the guards set there by the Parliament, what authority he had for taking him away. To this Cornet Joyce replied, the authority of the army. "'Have you a written commission?' said the King. Joyce, pointing to his four hundred men on horseback, replied, "'That is my commission.' "'Well,' said the King, smiling as if he were pleased, "'I never before read such a commission, but it is written in fair and legible characters. This is as a company of as handsome proper gentlemen as I have seen a long while. He was asked where he would like to live, and he said at Newmarket. So to Newmarket he and Cornet Joyce and the four hundred horsemen rode, the King remarking in the same smiling way that he could ride as far as a, at a spell as Cornet Joyce or any man there. The King quite believed, I think, that the army were his friends. He said as much to Fairfax when that general, Oliver Cromwell, and Ireton went to persuade him to return to the custody of the Parliament. He preferred to remain as he was, and resolved to remain as he was, and when the army moved nearer and nearer London, to frighten the Parliament into yielding to their demands, they took the King with them. It was a deplorable thing that England should be at the mercy of a great body of soldiers with arms in their hands, but the King certainly favoured them at this important time of his life, as compared with the more lawful power that tried to control him. It must be added, however, that they treated him, as yet, more respectfully and kindly than the Parliament had done. They allowed him to be attended by his own servants, to be splendidly entertained at various houses, and to see his children at Cavisham House, near Reading, for two days. Whereas the Parliament had been rather hard with him, and had only allowed him to ride out and play at bowls. It is much to be believed that if the King could have been trusted, even at this time he might have been saved. Even Oliver Cromwell expressly said that he did believe that no man could enjoy his possessions in peace unless the King had his rights. He was not unfriendly towards the King. He had been present when he received his children, and had been much affected by the pitiable nature of the scene. He saw the King often. 
He frequently walked and talked with him in the long galleries and pleasant gardens of the palace at Hampton Court, whither he was now removed, and in all this risked something of his influence with the army. But the King was in secret hopes of help from the Scottish people, and the moment he was encouraged to join them he began to be cool to his new friends, the army, and to tell the officers that they could not possibly do without him. At the very time, too, when he was promising to make Cromwell and Ireton noblemen, if they would help him up to his old height, he was writing to the Queen that he meant to hang them. They both afterwards declared that they had been privately informed that such a letter would be found, on a certain evening, sewed up in a saddle which would be taken to the Blue Boar in Holborn to be sent to Dover, and that they went there disguised as common soldiers, and sat drinking in the inn-yard until a man came with the saddle, which they ripped up with their knives, and therein found the letter. I see little reason to doubt the story. It is certain that Oliver Cromwell told one of the King's most faithful followers that the King could not be trusted, and that he would not be answerable if anything amiss were to happen to him. Still, even after that, he kept a promise he had made to the King, by letting him know that there was a plot with a certain portion of the army to seize him. I believe that, in fact, he sincerely wanted the King to escape abroad, and so to be got rid of without more trouble or danger. That Oliver himself had work enough with the army is pretty plain, for some of the troops were so mutinous against him, and against those who acted with him at this time, that he found it necessary to have one man shot at the head of his regiment to overawe the rest. The King, when he received Oliver's warning, made his escape from Hampton Court. After some indecision and uncertainty, he went to Carisbrook Castle in the Isle of Wight. At first he was pretty free there, but even there he carried on a pretended treaty with the Parliament, while he was really treating with commissioners from Scotland to send an army into England to take his part. When he broke off this treaty with the Parliament, having settled with Scotland, and was treated as a prisoner, his treatment was not changed too soon, for he had plotted to escape that very night to a ship sent by the Queen which was lying off the island. He was doomed to be disappointed in his hopes from Scotland. The agreement he had made with the Scottish commissioners was not favourable enough to the religion of that country to please the Scottish clergy, and they preached against it. The consequence was, that the army raised in Scotland and sent over was too small to do much, and that, although it was helped by a rising of the Royalists in England and by good soldiers from Ireland, it could make no head against the parliamentary army under such men as Cromwell and Fairfax. The King's eldest son, the Prince of Wales, came over from Holland with nineteen ships, a part of the English fleet having gone over to him, to help his father, but nothing came of his voyage, and he was fain to return. The most remarkable event of this second civil war was the cruel execution by the Parliamentary General of Sir Charles Lucas and Sir George Lyle, two grand royalist generals, who had bravely defended Colchester under every disadvantage of famine and distress for nearly three months. When Sir Charles Lucas was shot, Sir George Lyle kissed his body and said to the soldiers who were to shoot him, "'Come nearer and make sure of me.' "'I warrant you, Sir George,' said one of the soldiers, "'we shall hit you.' "'I?' he returned with a smile. "'But I have been nearer to you, my friends, many a time, and you have missed me.' The Parliament, after being fearfully bullied by the army, who demanded to have seven members whom they disliked given up to them, had voted that they would have nothing more to do with the King. On the conclusion, however, of this second civil war, which did not last more than six months, they appointed commissioners to treat with him. The King, then so far released again as to be allowed to live in a private house at Newport in the Isle of Wight, managed his own part of the negotiation with a sense that was admired by all who saw him, and gave up, in the end, all that was asked of him, even yielding, which he had steadily refused so far, to the temporary abolition of the bishops and the transfer of their church land to the crown. Still, with his old fatal vice upon him, when his best friends joined the commissioners in beseeching him to yield all those points as the only means of saving himself from the army, he was plotting to escape from the island, he was holding correspondence with his friends and the Catholics in Ireland, though declaring that he was not, and he was writing with his own hand that in what he yielded he meant nothing but to get time to escape. 
Matters were at this pass when the army, resolved to defy the Parliament, marched up to London. The Parliament, not afraid of them now, and boldly led by Hollis, voted that the King's concessions were sufficient ground for settling the peace of the Kingdom. Upon that, Colonel Rich and Colonel Pride went down to the House of Commons with a regiment of horse-soldiers and a regiment of foot, and Colonel Pride, standing in the lobby with a list of the members who were obnoxious to the army in his hand, had them pointed out to him as they came through, and took them all into custody. This proceeding was afterwards called by the people, for a joke, Pride's Purge. Cromwell was in the north at the head of his men at the time, but when he came home, approved of what had been done. What with imprisoning some members and causing others to stay away, the army had now reduced the House of Commons to some fifty or so. These soon voted that it was treason in a king to make war against his Parliament and his people, and sent an ordinance up to the House of Lords for the king's being tried as a traitor. The House of Lords, then sixteen in number, to a man rejected it. Thereupon the Commons made an ordinance of their own, that they were the supreme government of the country, and would bring the king to trial. The king had been taken for security to a place called Hurst Castle, a lonely house on a rock in the sea, connected with the coast of Hampshire by a rough road two miles long at low water. Thence he was ordered to be removed to Windsor, thence, after being but rudely used there, and having none but soldiers to wait upon him at table, he was brought up to St. James Palace in London, and told that his trial was appointed for next day. On Saturday, the 20th of January, 1649, this memorable trial began. The House of Commons had settled that 135 persons should form the court, and these were taken from the House itself, from among the officers of the army, and from among the lawyers and citizens. John Bradshaw, sergeant-at-law, was appointed president. The place was Westminster Hall. At the upper end, in a red velvet chair, sat the president, with his hat, lined with plates of iron for his protection, on his head. The rest of the court sat on side-benches, also wearing their hats. The king's seat was covered with velvet, like that of the president, and was opposite to it. He was brought from St. James's to Whitehall, and from Whitehall he came by water to his trial. When he came in, he looked round very steadily on the court, and on the great number of spectators, and then sat down. Presently he got up and looked round again. On the indictment, against Charles Stuart for high treason, being read, he smiled several times, and he denied the authority of the court, saying that there could be no Parliament without a House of Lords, and that he saw no House of Lords there. Also that the King ought to be there, and that he saw no King in the King's right place. Bradshaw replied that the court was satisfied with its authority, and that its authority was God's authority in the kingdoms. He then adjourned the court to the following Monday. On that day the trial was resumed and went on all the week. When the Saturday came, as the king passed forward to his place in the hall, some soldiers and others cried for justice and execution on him. That day, too, Bradshaw, like an angry sultan, wore a red robe, instead of the black robe he had worn before. The king was sentenced to death that day. As he went out, one solitary soldier said, "'God bless you, sir.' For this, his officer struck him. The king said he thought the punishment exceeded the offence. The silver head of his walking-stick had fallen off while he leaned upon it at one time of the trial. The accident seemed to disturb him, as if he thought it ominous of the falling of his own head, and he admitted as much, now it was all over. Being taken back to Whitehall, he sent to the House of Commons, saying that as the time of his execution might be nigh, he wished he might be allowed to see his darling children. It was granted. On the Monday he was taken back to St. James, and his two children then in England, the Princess Elizabeth thirteen years old, and the Duke of Gloucester nine years old, were brought to take leave of him from Sion House, near Brentford. It was a sad and touching scene, when he kissed and fondled those poor children, and made a little present of two diamond seals to the princess, and gave them tender messages to their mother, who little deserved them, for she had a lover of her own whom she married soon afterwards, and told them that he died for the laws and liberties of the land. I am bound to say that I don't think he did, but I dare say he believed so. There were ambassadors from Holland that day to intercede for the unhappy king, whom you and I both wish the Parliament had spared, but they got no answer. 
The Scottish commissioners interceded too. So did the Prince of Wales, by a letter in which he offered as the next heir to the throne to accept any conditions from the Parliament. So did the Queen, by letter likewise. Notwithstanding all, the warrant for the execution was this day signed. There is a story that as Oliver Cromwell went to the table with the pen in his hand to put his signature to it, he drew his pen across the face of one of the commissioners who was standing near and marked it with ink. That commissioner had not signed his own name yet, and the story adds that when he came to do it, he marked Cromwell's face with ink in the same way. The king slept well, untroubled by the knowledge that it was his last night on earth, and rose on the 30th of January, two hours before day, and dressed himself carefully. He put on two shirts, lest he should tremble with the cold, and had his hair very carefully combed. The warrant had been directed to three officers of the army, Colonel Hacker, Colonel Hunks, and Colonel Fayer. At ten o'clock, the first of these came to the door and said it was time to go to Whitehall. The king, who had always been a quick walker, walked at his usual speed through the park, and called out to the guard, with his accustomed voice of command, "'March on apace!' When he came to Whitehall, he was taken to his own bedroom, where a breakfast was set forth. As he had taken the sacrament, he would eat nothing more, but at about the time when the church bells struck twelve at noon, for he had to wait through the scaffold not being ready, he took the advice of the good Bishop Juxon, who was with him, and ate a little bread and drank a glass of claret. Soon after he had taken this refreshment, Colonel Hacker came to the chamber with the warrant in his hand and called for Charles Stuart. And then, through the long gallery of Whitehall Palace, which he had often seen light and gay and merry and crowded, in very different times, the fallen king passed along, until he came to the centre window of the banqueting-house, through which he emerged upon the scaffold, which was hung with black. He looked at the two executioners, who were dressed in black and masked. He looked at the troops of soldiers on horseback and on foot, and all looked up at him in silence. He looked at the vast array of spectators, filling up the view beyond, and turning all their faces upon him. He looked at his old palace of St. James's, and he looked at the block. He seemed a little troubled to find that it was so low, and asked, if there were no place higher? Then, to those upon the scaffold, he said, that it was the Parliament who had begun the war, and not he, but he hoped they might be guiltless too, as ill instruments had gone between them. In one respect, he said, he suffered justly, and that was because he had permitted an unjust sentence to be executed on another. In this he referred to the Earl of Strafford. He was not at all afraid to die, but he was anxious to die easily. When someone touched the axe while he was speaking, he broke off and called out, "'Take heed of the axe! Take heed of the axe!' He also said to Colonel Hacker, "'Take care that they do not put me to pain.' He told the executioner, "'I shall say but very short prayers, and then thrust out my hands, as the sign to strike.' He put his hair up, under a white satin cap which the bishop had carried, and said, "'I have a good cause and a gracious God on my side.' The bishop the bishop told him that he had but one stage more to travel in this weary world, and that, though it was a turbulent and troublesome stage, it was a short one, and would carry him a great way, all the way from earth to heaven. The king's last word, as he gave his cloak and the George, the decoration from his breast, to the bishop, was, Remember! He then kneeled down, laid his head on the block, spread out his hands, and was instantly killed. One universal groan broke from the crowd, and the soldiers, who had sat on their horses and stood in their ranks, immovable as statues, were of a sudden all in motion, clearing the streets. Thus, in the forty-ninth year of his age, falling at the same time of his career as Strafford had fallen in his, perished Charles I. With all my sorrow for him, I cannot agree with him that he died the martyr of the people, for the people had been martyrs to him, and to his ideas of a king's rights long before. Indeed, I am afraid that he was but a bad judge of martyrs, for he had called that infamous Duke of Buckingham the martyr of his sovereign. End of chapter 33 Recording by Gwyneth Connell, New York City